HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network since 2009. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Well, hello, and welcome to this very special episode of Processing. Today, we have a guest joining us all the way from Denver, Colorado, uh, Ava Trucky. Ava, it is such a pleasure to be with you. Ava is a writer and a cook, a chef, and just an all-around awesome person who has a very cute dog who is now in the screen. Ava, what is your dog's name? We must know. This is Boo Mercy, oh. and he's very naughty. Boomer, you're naughty and bad, but cute. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, thanks for thanks for having me. I appreciate y'all. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Of course, we're so happy to have you here. So Ava, we connected as uh, many people do in this day and age, becoming kind of buddies on Instagram, which I feel like is is that the best and maybe only positive thing Instagram has to offer? <laughs> yes. And it's such a weird, I was actually just having this conversation with one of my buddies um, going through our wedding list. We're getting married in March. And the number of people that I was like, met this person on Instagram, met this person online. It's so wild. And I think that that is, yeah, one of the small, Mm -hmm. the small reasons why I stay (laughs) the community building. Yeah. Yeah. It's really cool. And Ava, you are also in the food community. So tell us a little bit about like what your, I mean, actually, let's just kind of start with how did you come to love food? And then like, let's, we'll kind of get into the food space that you are living in right now. I I think that it started with my father, who was a fantastic cook and worked in kitchens when I was a kid. Um, and his wife, the my stepmother that I grew up with for the majority of my life was a tremendous cook, self-taught. Um, she's from Mexico city and I've never since knowing her, I've never been able to meet somebody that can just taste a dish Mm -hmm. and then replicate it without like a lot of trial and error, you know? And I, and I always thought that that was really incredible. And so it's, it's been a long twisty road of like loving food and loving being in the kitchen and then 
not loving food because of um, how I feel about my body, how I feel about existing in a fat body. So it's been like a weird, long winding road, mm-hmm. but I've, I've always loved food. I've always loved to eat. Um, and mm-hmm. I, and I love being in the kitchen. Yeah. I have since I was a kid. Cool. And you you were mentioning something when we kind of chatted before the show, just about um, the relationship between you and your mom. And you had mentioned something which I think is interesting. And we hear sometimes on this show, uh, which is that your mom maybe wasn't like super geared towards cooking when you were growing up or like maybe I don't want to say anything, but like maybe not like a fabulous, like maybe cooking wasn't her forte, which I think is um, interesting. I want to know what you, how you feel about this. Cause I think a lot of times there's an expectation of people who end up working in food and how they must've grown up around food. And it must've been that you were eating the most wonderful things all the time. And You know, even my mother, Bobby, and my dad were both fabulous cooks. But when I was growing up, neither of them really cooked, liked to cook anymore. They were coming from a background working in, you know, their own food businesses. And I think, Bobby, you can maybe expand on this a little bit in a minute, but like had tired of it, right? So like my experience with food growing up, my my parents were great chefs, but I didn't eat great things really. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, like, I just want to hear, I guess, what you have to say about, like, growing up with maybe parents who aren't great chefs or not eating, like, really, like, quote, unquote, extraordinary food, but then finding um, a deep appreciation for it in another way. What was that like for you? I mean, we can flat out say it. My mom was a god-awful cook. (laughs) I mean, it was, you know, she, she definitely cooked out of necessity, right? She was really young when she had me. She was 17. Mm. Uh, super under-resourced for, for the bulk of my life. It was just her and I, and we were poor, real poor. And so we Mm. weren't working with a whole lot, you know, but I I do vividly remember that she did her best to make sure that whatever we did have, that it was as well-rounded as it could be. You know what I'm saying? So like we might've been eating fish sticks that were frozen and, you know, like canned green beans, but there was like a vegetable, there was like some sort of protein, you know, and there was a lot of bread and butter. Yes. Um, and and so, you know, she she didn't cook well. She cooked absolutely out of necessity. She knew that that's what, you know, we had to do in order to sustain. But I do remember her love of food, just sort of in general. You know what I'm saying? And being able to appreciate other people's cooking and their food and because of her friends um, and the community that she surrounded herself with when I was really young, I feel really lucky, especially now as a parent, you know, looking back on all of the the types of foods and the folks that were that were cooking them, you know, mm-hmm. it was so different than what was happening in my own house. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, she she couldn't cook, but. She still loved, she still loved food too. So, and I, yeah, and I remember that about her fondly. What were the treats that you remember growing up? Were there any treats that were stuck out in your mind? Taco Bell. (laughs) Uh Um, I also love Taco Bell very much. I I still do. I still do love Taco Bell, actually. Um, It's good. It's a great, the texture, right? Like, food is so much about texture and they really do. I feel like maybe better than any other fast food, like such good texture with that Taco Bell. 
the <laughs> idea of like Taco Bell really nails the concept of like salt, fat, acid, heat. I don't oh, like it is the hill that I am willing to die on. <laughs> they just get it right every single time. But, yeah. you know, even I mean, she she wasn't a cook. She certainly wasn't a baker, you know, but um, I was just telling my partner this, that she loved the little Debbie's um, the Swiss cake rolls. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. And I love those too. when you grow up with such a young parent, right, there's a lot of this interconnectedness of sort mm-hmm. of raising each other. Right. Mm-hmm. And so the older that I got, it was very well known. Like this is the stuff in the cupboard that yeah. like you don't, this is off limits. Don't, don't eat my food. Yeah. And those were like the one thing that I knew that like if I dipped into, it was on. So <laughs> like if she shared with me, I was like, it was like a rare, it was a rare treat, but I was like, mom, those chocolate things up there. And she was like, absolutely not. No. But once in a while she would, once in a while she would. And that was, so, it was like coveted, the Swiss cake roll. Yeah. yeah, these moments of like, it's interesting, you know, we always talk about how food and like the general reason we started doing this show in the first place is right. Like if all these experiences as people, and it's hard to sometimes file them all and keep track of them all, right? Like the traumas, the little moments, the big moments, the wins, the losses, and like something that's often such like a trail marker is food, right? And it's interesting because you would never realize that at the time that like the Swiss cake roll is like going to be this like trail marker, right? This like remember right years later. Yeah. Yeah. But like it ends up being, and Mm -hmm. I think that's the really cool thing because, uh, it's hard to make sense of some of this stuff and the, the, the bittersweet, you know, within like the library of your memories, but that's, it's wonderful how like little things like that food things can stand out and be, be a dog. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's, I'm sure we'll talk about it, but that's sort of the premise of the book that I wrote is the idea of a food tethering us to a specific memory. And when I think about my whole, you know, life from like an aerial view, those are the things that stand out, even if it was really nominal, right? It wasn't like this big, you know, grand meal. It wasn't anything remarkable, Um, but I can still picture you know, the smell of garlic on my hands from one scenario or like cherry popsicle stains on the sides of my mouth, you know, and that's how my brain works is when I think of memories, I think about what I ate for breakfast that day, or if I was making dinner and crying at that time. So that's, yeah, that's how my brain works. Yeah. And it's a beautiful way for a brain to work. (laughs) And I can definitely identify and Bobby can too. I appreciate that as a neurodivergent person. (laughs) Um, So Ava, just kind of going back to your mom, you know, you had mentioned to us before the show that your mom passed away when you were like right before your 25th birthday. Yeah, it was two days before. Oh, that's just, I mean, losing a parent, losing a mother is like such a, you know, profound, uh, life-changing experience. And especially at that kind of age, and then when it comes right before your 25th birthday, um, can you talk to us a little bit about that grief experience? Yeah. Our, our relationship at that point in both of our lives was somewhat non-existent. I mean, it was a lot of frustration and disappointment on my end. I really, um, I, I just, 
started settling in the idea of having boundaries, mm. you know, as much as I loved her and as much as I really held on to our really super tight connectedness, I knew I didn't have a word for it then. Right. But I knew that like the more that I continued to let her in, the more hurt that I got or the more scared I was or mm-hmm. the more worried I, I was about her as somebody mm-hmm. that wrestled with addiction, the most, you know, the majority of her life or my life rather. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when she, when she died, <clears throat> we really didn't have much of a relationship. You know, I remember sort of keeping tabs on her to make sure that she was alive, you know, mm-hmm. Um, and I remember in the moment of learning that she had passed with all of the emotions that cycle through, I'll never forget that the first one was relief, you know, and like having to sort through the, the grief and the guilt that comes with being like, you're dead. And that makes me profoundly sad. And that that's okay. And, and if anything, I think that it's better than, than okay, you know, and I've had to spend a lot of time sort of sorting, sorting that part out. Yeah. Cause it sounds like it was hard. It sounds like your relationship was just hard. And sometimes when something hard ends, we feel a sense of relief. It's understandable. Yeah. yeah. It I makes grief complicated, right? I felt that with my dad, who was like such a difficult person a great person and I loved him so much but you know it was also I can totally identify with that and then we're not really like told that that's like okay you know what I mean because we're not really told much of anything about death or grief but like no one's ever like hey if you feel a bit relieved when somebody dies you had a complicated relationship with like it's like normal and that doesn't make you a monstrous person at all it just makes you like a person yeah and I you know it's easy right when we talk about especially folks with uh addiction right there's there's a lot of nuance there there's a lot of stereotyping but you know in all of the ways that our relationship was really complicated and it was hard um she was so much fucking fun I mean she was she was so fun and I loved her so much for, you know, I mean, that was, that was my person. We raised each other mm. and yeah, I, you know, I, and I still am. I think, I think about her all the time, you know, and I'm, I'm okay with, with her not being here in the state that she was for so long. Yeah. Has the view changed at all of her having died two days before your birthday? Cause you said it was about 13 years ago, right? That you died. Yeah. I I I was angry. You know, I was when she died, it was at such a weird turning point in my life because I had just started coming off of this time in my life. The majority of my childhood was wildly traumatic for a lot of different reasons and then well into my teenage years and then even into my early twenties. And so it was like, I, for the first time had the opportunity to start instead of compartmentalizing sort of examine like, Holy shit, you made it 
alive out of this and and that too and then that you know and then when she died it was sort of like this whole other thing and layer on top of it and I remember for a, for a while I mm. felt so angry like yes I'm glad that you have some relief and me too and also like your timing sucks so <laughs> you could have just done that differently <laughs> did she choose the timing or did it happen what is it okay if we ask what happened to your mom absolutely um ironically she was actually living back in Colorado for the first time since I was a kid um I want to say she had been here for about three weeks not not very long at all and I was doing that dance of like I really want to see her because I love this person so much and absolutely avoiding her at the same time, you know, and she was married to a man that I didn't know that I had never met. Uh, that's actually who called me to, to tell me that she had died. Um, and I, I don't know. You know, I, I, I know how she died from a, from a technical, you know, what's on her death certificate um, mm -hmm. is she aspirated, she vomited in her sleep. <clears throat> yeah. um, and there's, because of where our relationship stood, you know, especially in the last two years of her life, I have vacillated hard on, you know, it sounds like there was some cocktailing of some, some medications that she took mm -hmm. that didn't fare well and ultimately resulted in her death. And I, I don't know if, if it was intentional. I, you know, I was told that it wasn't mm -hmm. and I don't know how much of that I believe, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so there's still a lot of, I really don't. There's a lot of like unknown from a technical standpoint and also just a lot of unknown in my brain around, around all of it. Mm -hmm. Ava, you, I just want to take you back like a couple of minutes ago when you said your mom was so much fun. Mm -hmm. um, would you tell us a little bit about some of the things that made her so much fun? If there's anything specific that comes to mind. Uh, I can, because I just had this conversation with my six soon to be seven year old, she'll ask about her, you know, and she said, do you, do you think that, do you think that your mom would have liked me? Oh. Oh. And I was like, yeah, bud, she's, yeah, you're so cool. And she was so cool. And she was like, did she listen to music? And that was, it was cool for her to say that. Because when I think about my mom, especially when I was Scarlett's age, that's what I think about is long road trips and like camping trips and her singing so off key. <laughs> Just like the absolute worst, like the worst singer. But she just, I mean, she like embodied it, right? And she was like, I am a terrible singer and <laughs> I am going to sing at the top of my lungs every chance that I, that I can get. 
Um, that says a lot. Top of her lungs. That says a lot, right? <laughs> you know, and yeah. like she was totally the mom that embarrassed you in the grocery store. <laughs> and as a mom now, I can look back and, you know, she would like be silly and 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 push the shopping cart and like dance. And I just remember being like, mom. <laughs> and, and now I do it to Scarlett and Scarlett gets just like, stop. This is so embarrassing. And I'm like, oh my God, it's true. I really am. I'm turning into my mother. Um, That's so sweet. But she was, she was young and silly and would pick me up early from school, you know, once in a while on a Friday and be like, come on, we got to get in the car. We got to, we got to go to a, a, de- a dentist appointment. And I was always like pretty straight as a kid. Yeah. And I was like, no, no, I don't. I don't have, and she was like, get in the car. <laughs> and then we, you know, we would go to, to one of the reservoirs out here, or just go mess around, go play outside. Yeah. She was, she was, um, she was a big kid because she was, she was yeah. a kid, you know? So um, yeah, she was, she was a lot of fun. She was my best friend. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, you're talking about her not maybe being the best cook and her like singing loud off key. It's just so true how people's like, sometimes they're most quirky or like, I don't want to say bad, but they're like, you know, the ways in which they're maybe fall short of perfection end up being their most like perfect qualities actually. Things that you favor. Yeah, for yeah. sure. When people are and like, what's the dish? Go ahead, Bobby. I just want to make a comment about what you said before that you're noticing as a mom now that you have some similarities to your own mom. I think part of the way we grieve people we really truly love in our hearts is that we recognize that we have we have taken on some of their qualities. We admire some of their qualities. We emulate some of them. We um, some of them are genetic, you know. But it's so it's part of how we we hold on to them you know, by noticing things in ourselves that are similar to them. Yeah. And I think yeah. it also helps you forgive the parts you didn't like so much. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because I notice mm-hmm. even as a parent things that I don't, you know, like I'm a shouty bomb. That's something that I like hate about myself, especially as a parent, but even as a person, mm-hmm. you know, I was talking about, I can get really loud and passionate about pasta, but I can also do that when I am too sweaty trying to put my makeup on. And I, <laughs> and I would love if I could just like quiet those parts sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you were also mentioning that uh, to us earlier that um, one of the ways, and this is, you know, obviously so common, but I really excited to hear you talk about this more specifically about um processing trauma and you know all kinds of complicated feelings through getting in the kitchen and also through writing which have you know recently come together for you in the writing of your first book which we can't wait to hear about but just uh yeah how how do you what is that process like for you when you get in the kitchen because it's i think different for everyone is it taking your brain offline is it focusing is it like what is that like for you I think at the beginning I I didn't necessarily realize that's what I was doing right so I I can remember when my mom died being in the kitchen more and and not at that point being able to identify that maybe that was sort of the reason right is that I needed to not necessarily be still but switch my brain into something else And the older that I've gotten, I've been able to identify like, oh, 
this happened, a series of events happened, and now I am in the kitchen. And that became really apparent when I had um, a miscarriage at 12 weeks in between Scarlet and Maddox in 2019. And it was in the fall. And that's what I did. I, the whole the whole thing around the miscarriage in itself, obviously, is traumatic. Yeah. But then there was this whole series of events afterwards. And it was a very long and drawn out process. And I immediately found myself just constantly in the kitchen, you know, and at that time, I was uh, mostly a stay at home parent, primary parent to Scarlett. And she was young enough, you know, that I could get her set up with whatever sort of paint or Play-Doh at the table next to me. And I would cook all day and whatever, right? I mean, obviously, you know, parts of me felt like I was being a little bit selfish because I did have such a young kid, a toddler. And, but I was like, but I have to feed us, right? Like I gotta, mm. gotta make these meals and I have to, I was doing way too much. Like this toddler was not asking for <laughs> like a four course dinner, right? Um, but I, I was never a baker. In fact, I, I didn't enjoy baking it you know there's too much precision there's too much science that's not how my brain works but I remember saying like I need something that's going to challenge me like I I, I want to be in the kitchen I want to sit in all of this I want to process my grief in this way but I need something that is going to challenge me and I started with biscuits I started with buttermilk biscuits and I actually recently found the first picture that I took and I'll never forget being like, Oh, cute. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I did, I did it. And I mean, they're like this tall, you know, <laughs> and I remember being like, cool. You know, yeah. I, I wish that I could get like a little bit better of a rise. And by the time, you know, I felt like I had mastered it, I could make buttermilk biscuits that were, you know, four inches high. And I just remember being like, this is where we started. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's a growth exciting. chart. Yeah. <laughs> yes, a literal growth chart of yeah. biscuits. Yeah. yeah. So who did you feed with the food? Was it just your daughter that you would feed the meals to or other people? No, I was married at the time uh, to my ex-husband. And we also lived in a multi-generational home setup. So we lived with his mother, mm -hmm. you know. And so, yes, I was doing it for me. But I would be lying if I said that I didn't love innately feeding people. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I was teaching myself, learning, processing, but also able to, to give my family something at the end of it, uh, which was and continues to be really fulfilling for me. What kind of things like during this period of time were you making? Like what stands out? I remember the day that I found out that I miscarried was actually Scarlett's birthday and I had just started out making Roy Choi's carne asada for that night um and I was going to do homemade tortillas and all of this stuff right and so when I got back from the hospital weeks and weeks and weeks later like I said it was so drawn out um 
I was like commit. I was like, I, I have not made that recipe. And I, I don't, you know, I'm sure that there's some correlation of the two. I don't feel like I am intentionally avoiding it. But I mean, there was, I, I started making sourdough as we did at the beginning of the pandemic. And with that came, I mean, all of the discard stuff, right? There was like the English muffins and regular muffins and like skillet pancakes. And I taught myself how to make naan with my starter, you know, and to accompany me, accompany all of these other things, right? So I was making like these sheet pans of shawarma and we love curries and yeah I just um, you name it I made it in that time yeah Yeah. it's such an interesting thing to think back on about I mean just the significant significance of cooking during quarantine it was like it's so weird to think back right it seems like watching I guess when I think about quarantine, I think about it like watching a movie that hasn't yet, that's kind of corny and hasn't aged into being cool again yet. You know what I mean? Almost like listening to like a band from, I don't know, 2010, which like you, you truly do kind of like have a nostalgia for, but it's like not quite time yet to put them on. It's not time. It's yeah. not, it's not quite vintage. It's more. Yes, exactly. So, it has yeah. an instant to being cool and vintage. And that's how I think about quarantine. So thinking about it is funny, but yeah, what a, what a role, like, you know, it's, it's interesting and much like with grief, right. Of any sort, when kind of everything else feels stripped away, like there's these couple of things that feel like you can really tuck into. And it is fascinating how for so many people who have, you know, the means to do so cooking, became this thing that was just like the one piece of joy in a very bleak time you know absolutely and it was compounded right so I had this miscarriage I got pregnant with Maddox fairly quickly after that mm-hmm. and then just a couple months later you know the the pandemic began and then we were in lockdown and so it was mm-hmm. like this weird sort of well I was already doing this so I'm just gonna like keep chipping away at it right Mm -hmm. and then you know in terms of baking yeah I just flew off the rails I was like what else can I bake today yeah there was bagels yeah name it guys yeah so fun that's fun so Ava you should know that Zara and I also you know obviously use cooking as a way to express our feelings and as you were talking I was thinking to myself sometimes I purposefully say I gotta cook but other times I just find myself after something upset is, is happening. It could be an hour later and I go, oh my goodness, I'm in the middle of, you know, a huge project and I just did it automatically. So I don't, I don't know how you feel about that, but whether you often think about it or it just happens as part of your nature to jump in and cook. I think now that I, you know, can absolutely identify that that is sort of one of the ways in which I've therapized myself. Mm-hmm. you know, or process things. Absolutely. And, you know, not necessarily when I'm thinking about what I'm going to make for dinner, I generally have an idea, right. But I, of what the week looks like, especially if it's a, a week that the kids are home, mm-hmm. but I also can name that, you know, when I'm looking at it and sort of gathering all of my thoughts for the week, if I'm feeling like a lot of 
pent up sort of emotional whatever, I'll specifically choose the thing that requires the most work, right? Or then I will decide, well, I'm making dinner. So probably I also need to make a blackberry and corn cobbler, which is what I did on Monday, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so right. it's so good. <laughs> so it is, I think, you know, it's part processing and like sort of bringing myself back into my body. It's also accessing pleasure. Mm-hmm. And it's also for me as somebody with ADHD, maybe I'm procrastinating. Maybe I'm using it as a way to not do that all this stuff that I should be doing. <laughs> but um, my family is going to eat. And so that's, that's what matters. Yeah. That's amazing. You know, also I, I think like just in you talking about this, I guess this is an idea I probably circled around a lot, but haven't had exactly the right words for, but I think that like when things feel so hectic and out of control sometimes or painful and so much emotional pain comes from like lack of control and not being able to like have um, control over an outcome, you know, that like when you're cooking for the most part, right. If you are a a good cook or, you know, most of the time the thing you're going to make like comes out. Right. So it's a way to be like, I'm going to start something that I want to turn out a certain way. And then there will be a final finished result that I can enjoy. You know, it's such, it's so interesting to me to just kind of think about that as, as a reason for which maybe we cook through times of pain. It's like kind of control over the finished out of a thousand percent. Yeah. Of a positive, it's creating like literally creating a positive outcome. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I've spent a lot of time in therapy uh, in my adult life. And absolutely, you know, I think when you're raised in, in an environment that I was raised in, I did not have control over the majority of my life. And so now, for sure, right? Like if I need a win, if I know that I need like a win, I need to like, Something has to succeed today. Mm-hmm. I am going to make tomato rosa because like I cannot fuck that up. I am going to make mm-hmm. it and I'm going, I have such a praise kink that like I know that I nailed that and mm-hmm. at least some of my world is right that day. So absolutely for me, that is mm-hmm. if I need a win. And I also know the things that like maybe I need to avoid, you know, like maybe I'm not great at doing that. So maybe don't make that today because then... Mm-hmm. You're, it's going to like result in tears or something and not in a good way. Totally. Or like, I have this memory of making wedding cakes for two of like my uh, favorite clients who are so amazing and they were getting married and they wanted me to make their wedding cakes. And I do love baking, but baking a wedding cake is a totally different thing. Right. And then I also wasn't working in my, my space that I work in now, which is a professional kitchen. I was just making them from home in the beginning of September. So it's hot and everything is melting. (laughs) And I was like making a wedding cake and I'm sure heartbroken for one reason or another at the time, um, which is usually the case for me (laughs) and making wedding cakes and just feeling like this is the worst possible thing. I was like, I'm never going to fucking anything again ever. How could this happen? I'm a failure. You know, then you just realize like, don't do things sometimes that are to be impossible and don't do them in an impossible space, which is the most important thing I think for cooking, right? Because if you're in a space that 
that at least has the capacity to handle your errors. Oh God. Yes. I went to, um, one of the last trips that I took with my ex-husband, uh, we were in New Mexico and we, we had an Airbnb. I don't celebrate Thanksgiving. Right. But any, any reason to get folks together and like eat and drink and community and whatnot, I'm, I'm there for. So it was just me and my ex and Scarlett and we rent and there was like this tear, I mean, like blizzard, we were not going anywhere. Luckily we already had the groceries, but this kitchen was the worst it was so poorly outfitted for like any, you know, and that's such a privileged thing to say. And I, and I recognize that, but God damn a glass cutting board. Stop. Like it was, who, oh, no. and I just will never forget. And you know, like the dullest knife in the free world, <laughs> there was like one bowl, one pot that would like fit a, a box of macaroni for macaroni and cheese. It was, Gosh. I mean, we made it through, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally. That can either be the most frustrating thing or like the most fun thing we have. I have a really good friend who has like a tiny little house that was like her family since the forties or something in Long Beach and Long Island. And it's still also outfitted with the pots and pans and dishes and stuff. And there's like from the forties. So whenever we go there, we have the same experience, but we try to really work with it. All right, we're all right. We'll make a panzanella. We'll just squish everything with our hands. And then we always have to do the dishes <laughs> in the bathtub. <laughs> it's like it turns out to be kind of fun but so Ava you are writing a book which is so exciting and literally cannot wait for it I mean that in the Webster's sense I literally cannot wait for it I'm so excited whenever since I appreciate that dying to like read it and just hear your perspective and hear your stories but can you tell us a little bit about your writing and what what you're working on with this book yes I started writing this sort of genre bending memoir adjacent it is a memoir but it's this collection of personal essays that span from some of my earliest memories around food about being a kid um, like five or six up until my mother's death and it's just sort of these beignets these memories that are somehow attached to either a food or a beverage or something that we nourish ourselves with. And it has been really cathartic to write. It's not finished, which I get mixed messaging about, right? Most agents will tell you that when you're writing nonfiction, specifically memoir, they don't want it finished, right? They kind of want to offer some guidance and editors want to have a say. But if you go to like a boutique publisher, they want your full manuscript. And so it's not done. I would say it's about three quarters of the way done. And the parts that are not finished are what we would consider to be the most recent, right? Mm -hmm. And if I'm being honest with myself, there's still some processing that has to be done there, right? Mm -hmm. So the reason that I write is to understand and to have a better idea of what's going on in my surroundings or in this time. So there's some avoidance there, admittedly. Um, but it's, I'm really excited about it. You know, it's, it's weird writing memoir because it's 
there's this piece attached to it of like, who the fuck are you? And why are you writing your life story? Who cares? You know what I'm saying? Like, who do you think you are? Um, it's been cool. You know, I, I am so new to that space, you know, and, and doing it the way of traditional publishing. And I feel it feels really good to be here because in the ways that it feels challenging, feel exciting, you know, and writing in this way or recounting these specific memories for the most part feel really good and really healing and not daunting. You know, I think that we put stuff in their boxes, right. And compartmentalize. And it's kind of nice to be able to go back to those boxes and like take a couple pieces out try it on be like, ah, gonna write 400 words today and then I'm gonna like put that back up there for a minute so yeah the book at this point is titled butter thighs um yeah and I you know I want to finish it I'm in the the agent querying time right now which is super weird it's like pick me (laughs) you know like you just like send your work off to so many people and like cross your fingers So yeah, it's been, it's been cool though. It's been, it's been fun to, to learn in a way that I haven't necessarily done before. You know, I'm not formally educated. I didn't go to college, but I love learning. And so I find that even in, in my writing practice and my writing style, I learn so much every day. I don't know if you can feel the same way as, as you have written yours, but Yeah, I totally identify with so much of this. And one thing that I've found interesting in writing this book that I'm working on as well, which is, you know, also kind of like memoir-ish with with food, um, is that I feel, and in being a reader and a lover of memoir, like I really do love memoirs. And that goes from like celebrity memoirs I would have never thought I would have picked up to, you know, the gamut of, I just really love memoir. And I find that the most, you know, we are never done really fully processing our own lives, right? It never is like, okay, well that's done. Put a lid on it and put it away on the shelf, right? Like maybe 90%, but you know, there's always things to explore if we want to. And maybe, you know, it's all about perspective. Maybe we did have the right, whatever, it's never fully done, but I do think that the most successful memoirs that I read that feel like the most powerful are the ones where the author has come to a a almost processing as close to finishing the process. You know what I mean? Like not to say it's like, needs like not raw, but that's, I guess I'm trying to say it's something I also struggle with, right. In writing my own thing is like, how much of a handle on this situation do I have? You know, like, do I really have? Because like, I'm trying to communicate in some way, not like an answer or a suggestion for how others should live their life, but in some way, as though this is a thing that I've been able to wrap my brain around. And I find for myself, yeah, the, the hardest thing is like, I guess, determining whether I have wrapped my brain around this or not. You know, have I kind of come to a place where I feel comfortable speaking on this, not like not sharing it, right? Because personally, I'm no pun intended, an open book. So sharing is not like embarrassing or difficult for me so much as like, I want to know that I know what my point is. And I find that to be difficult. So you're like, what is, what is the point of this? What is, what is my truth? Yeah, I do that a lot too. And 
And like, then you could also run yourself in circles into the ground to the point where you never write anything if you're really aiming to like nail that 100%. So I think there's like a healthy medium between both, but it is difficult. And then, you know, I really also identify with the part where you're talking about like, who am I? Why should I share my story? And I think that like, that's a healthy question to ask oneself, right? However, it's also just like the sharing of stories and the same reason like we do this podcast, the same reason like we open up to people in our lives or strangers in some way or watch movies or read books at all. Like like this shared human experience and different perspectives is so valuable, right? And it doesn't matter. Like who should you have to be? You know, should you have to be someone who like was lucky enough to have like, I don't know, a movie, not even like that's the pinnacle of luck, but like a movie career or a TV show. And then, and then, and only then should your story be significant. You know, the fact is like, everybody's story is significant and really important and helping other people kind of get through the day. And some people choose to want to share theirs, you know, and it's just because not everybody's a sharer or inclined to be like geared towards, you know, the creative arts and stuff like that. But your story is important because A, it's your story, but like in a worldly sense, you know, you don't, know the effect that like putting that pen to paper has on someone who picks up your book and like maybe I mean maybe anything but maybe was in a really challenging time in their lives or at the end of their rope in this like mindset where like you know everything looked dark and hazy and nobody could understand them they pick up your book and it could change their lives and then the kind of ripple effect from that is so magnificent so just like keep in mind like when you're wondering why you should do what you're doing. It's because you're a part of like the world and this is your one like life to do something you feel is important. And that's always valid. You know, no one can take that from you or like, you know, and never think that like your story for some reason doesn't deserve to be shared. Of course it absolutely does. Amen. (laughs) Yeah. I, um, I was just looking at back, you know, even on my bookshelf, but when I first started when I discovered food memoir, you know, we kind of talked about this the other day, but I vividly remember the first time that I discovered memoir and I was like, holy fuck, people just write <laughs> about their life. Yeah. You know, I'm like, there's not really their human experience, right? Like what and how they perceive the world. And I remember being, I think I was 21 like pretty late late to the game it was an augustine burroughs book it was running with scissors it was the first memoir that i wrote that i read and i just remember being like this like this is what i want to read and so i i mean for a, a really long time memoir was the only thing that i consumed and then when i discovered food memoir it was like game on i was yeah. obsessed yeah so cool do you listen I to think celebrity so- memoir book club at all with chelsea Devantes? Oh, I highly recommend. She's awesome. She's so cool. Such a great host. She's one of, I think, the showrunners on The Problem with Jon Stewart. She's really Mm -hmm. awesome. And uh, she hosts this podcast called Celebrity Memoir Book Club. And it is really great. And it it is really informative for like a lot of the things that work, don't work. I couldn't recommend enough. So fun. So also shout out to Chelsea Devantes. Your podcast is great. I was just going to make one point about the perspective because the story is important, but I think the perspective is where 
we we hook into other human beings mm. you know because we may have shared a story the story story may be inspiring but it's the way they see it the way the view the particular view they have that makes the difference yeah and some of my favorite writing some of my favorite memoirs specifically you know it's it's not these prescriptive memoir it's not like this this is how I became a millionaire by the time I was 25 you know it's Mm -hmm. like these snippets of people's lives that like Heartberries by Therese Marie Mailhot is so so incredible and just like in your guts and the same with The Light of the World by Elizabeth Alexander you know like these folks were not celebrities you know that they were they didn't have these enormous platforms when they wrote their books you know and those are some of the like most profound pieces of writing that have influenced just the way that i read how i consume literature and and how i write even you know so I'm going to be better about reminding myself of sharing my perspective when I'm like, why am I writing this? Yeah. Why <laughs> not? That? Ask yourself why not instead of why, you know? Touche. Yeah. Um, so I can't believe that we've almost come to the end of this episode. It flew by. I honestly feel like we've been talking for like 10 minutes. It was just so fun and exciting and such a great conversation. Um, at the end of each episode, we ask each guest um, if you had one bit of advice to give your younger self who kind of whatever point that looks like for you, you know, who is um, dealing with a really big grief situation and the point uh, where you've really felt lost knowing what you know now, what would that advice be for the younger you? Stay soft. So, yeah, so much so that I, I got it tattooed on me, you know, earlier Mm. I referenced having, a lot of anger, yeah, you know, for, for whatever, just being mad for a really large portion of my life and sort of using anger as a, as a way to be protective, which was really necessary for me to, to survive a lot of my life, you know, but I also realized how damaging that it could be as an adolescent, as like a, a young adult you know, and even, even as an adult, as a parent. And so when I look back, you know, it's like, put a buffer there, you know, create some softness, stay, stay soft. Cause I am so soft. I'm so sensitive. I cry all the time. Me too. You know, but I, <laughs> yeah, but I did, I lacked a lot of <clears throat> softness for myself specifically, you know, and really used defaulted to anger instead of vulnerability. And so, yeah, that's, you hear that a lot when we talk to our kids, when we talk to the dog, you know, if somebody's voice is raising or if they're playing too hard with one of each other, we just say soft. It's like the, it's the universal word in the house. It's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. And then we also like to ask everybody if we were lucky enough to all three get together right now for a meal that we can share, what would each of us like to bring? Y'all can't do this to me because I have so hard. I, I have thought about this because I listen to processing very often. And I was like, what's your, what's your answer going to be? I love a plan. Um, 
I still, I still don't have a plan. Uh, although I'm jazzed, our weather here in Denver is a weird anyways, but B, this summer has been like unprecedented weird weather. Mm-hmm. And so now it's just August and I just now have tomato plants that are producing fruit. So we are like well into the summer yeah. and it just feels like we're reaching like peak produce season around here. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going, I'm going easy. I'm doing like panzanella, lots of tomatoes, fresh basil, red wine bin, garlic. Yeah. That's good. That's nice. really nice. Bobby, what are you going to bring? Well, I was just smelling some peaches before and they smell so good. This is just the time, the right time for peaches. So I think I'm going to make peach Melba, but I'm going to use Oatly ice cream because I don't have <laughs> milk. And I'm going to take blackberries, fresh blackberries that I just got from my friend Heather's farm and make a blackberry sauce Yum. and poach the peaches a little bit. And we'll have some peach Melba. That sounds so good. We made I'm so into that. Good. That sounds amazing. We made peach melba cheesecake the other day at the pop-up. And that was first time I really familiarized myself with what peach melba was, which is probably right. It's peaches, raspberries, and I made right. it sounds even better. And ice cream, right? Right. right. And the name, Melba. I mean, I just Melba. So cute. Melba. Have you had the planet? Sorry, I'm derailing, okay. but have you had the, the planet oat brand of I like Oatly better on the ice cream. Do you? Okay. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Well, I disagree with both of you because I'm not an oat milk. Per- I've knew one person in the world that doesn't like oat milk. I stand alone. I'm an animal milk enthusiast only. <laughs> um, but so, okay. So I guess this means uh, I should bring the main course, which I'm happy to do. I love a spatchcocked chicken on the grill um rubbed with lots of garlic and lemon and then lemons squeezed all over it. I feel like it would be a perfect accompaniment to your panzanella and just like a big delicious juicy chicken lots of salt olive oil butter yum I'm so into it yeah sounds so good um I wish we could actually do this it'd be so much fun (laughs) Ava um thank you so much for joining us and just you know the incredible amount I just am always so blown away and honored by all our guests for you know, first thing in the morning, jumping on and sharing some of their most vulnerable, tender, hard moments in their life to talk about with just such grace. It's such like a generous thing to do because obviously it's a heavy lift and it, but it's really kind and we really appreciate it. And just like with writing your book, it really does help other people. So thank you so much from both of us. And it's really an honor to speak with you. It was such a fun talk. Thank you. Yeah. Thank both of you. And what are some ways that people can find you? I know you have the Feed Me stories, but how can they find you? Um, Instagram, just Ava Truckee, Twitter, Ava Truckee, website, avatruckee.com. <laughs> to keep it easy for y'all. Yeah. Awesome. And we can't wait to have you back on the show uh, when your book comes out. And we I would love to. You. Yeah. Thank thank you both so much for having for having me on and for, and for doing this. Like I, I told you, it's it's a privilege as a, as a listener of processing, um, and such a fan. So I appreciate oh, it. Y'all. Keep cooking and healing. Amen. <laughs> Ciao. All right, y'all. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's home of heritage radio network. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. 
HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City, Long Island, and Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.